0: Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Currently, 30 million people in the United States have diabetes, and the American Diabetes Association estimates that the total economic cost of the disease was $327 billion in 2017. An additional 84 million American adults have prediabetes, and 90% of them don't even know they have it according to the CDC. Given the high cost of treating diabetes and the large population with prediabetes, which puts them at an increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes, prevention has become a point of focus. At the annual meeting of the American Association of Diabetes Educators, held August 17th to 20th, prevention and delay of type 2 diabetes was one of the 2018 priority topics. Today, we're taking a look back to 2017 When the american journal of managed care convened a panel of experts to discuss diabetes prevention and the use of technology
1: welcome to the american journal of managed care peer exchange technology and diabetes care from prevention to disease management my name is dr dennis scanlon and i'm a professor of health policy and administration and Director for the Center for Healthcare Policy and Research in the College of Health and Human Development at the Pennsylvania State University. In today's discussion, the panel of experts will discuss the ever-increasing role that technology plays in both preventing and managing diabetes, as well as the challenges for payers, providers, and patients. Before we begin, let me briefly introduce our panelist. Dr. Robert Cabay is Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of Jocelyn Diabetes Center in Boston, an associate professor at the Harvard Medical School. Marianne Ann a Chicago-based dietitian, certified diabetes educator and consultant to physicians and health systems, and certified endocrinology coder. Dr. Neil Kaufman, founder and chief medical officer for Canary Health, and a board member with the Council for Diabetes Prevention, an adjunct professor of medicine and public health at the University of California, Los Angeles. And finally, Dr. Kenneth Snow, medical director for Aetna. Thank you all for joining us. So why don't we begin? First, we're gonna start with uh, the rise of technology for diabetes prevention. Bob, maybe I can start with you. Um, We talk a lot about uh, diabetes and diabetes treatment. Today, we're gonna talk about diabetes prevention. I guess maybe a starting point is what evidence is there for prevention and whether prevention works?
2: Well, it's a great question. So really the the landmark study was a, a study from the National Institute of Health. Uh, the Diabetes Prevention Program. And what they did was test fundamentally, can you prevent the development of diabetes? And they took two different approaches. One, a lifestyle intervention under very controlled, uh, uh, rigorous conditions. Uh, and the other was medication. And the medication ha- initially had two arms. One was a thiazolidinedione that was uh, uh, stopped because of the liver injury that was with troglitazone back in the day. But the, uh, the arm that continues with metformin as a, as a medication to prevent uh, diabetes development. Um, and uh, the remarkable results were that uh, the lifestyle intervention reduced uh, uh, the development of diabetes by almost two-thirds, and uh, twice as good as metformin did. And so lifestyle was really very effective. Uh, and, and the challenge of that study was it was done in a very rigorous and resource-intensive way to ensure that people adhere to their lifestyle. And the, the challenge has been now, how do you apply that uh, to the broader population? Right,
3: yeah.
1: Anyone else have any thoughts about that? How you take uh, what was done in a controlled setting and
3: work in prevention in the, in the real world? Well, that's always one of the concerns for a payer is whether something that has been accomplished in a very well-controlled clinical trial, whether it's actually going to show the same type of results when you bring it out into real-world experience. And certainly with the DPP, um, I think everybody is hopeful that that is the type of results um, that we continue to see.
4: Mm -hmm. And I'd I'd like to comment about how we define lifestyle intervention. Um, What the the trial showed is that weight loss was one of the key factors in the prevention of full-blown type 2 diabetes. Uh, Five to seven percent of weight loss from baseline and then a lower fat eating style and exercise, 150 minutes per week of aerobic exercise, um, and then some stress management. So those are really the, um, the elements of the lifestyle intervention.
5: Dr. Cotten. So what we found uh, with this theoretical approach, highly resource intent. One individual could maybe help 30 or 40 people over a year. It was uh, 16 weekly sessions, monthly sessions thereafter, an hour each week, one-on-one in person, and that worked. Uh, The CDC recognized that that was not a scalable or sustainable model and began looking to how to provide it in other ways. There's really been two streams or two threads of approaches. One that's the dominant one, which is to use groups. So instead of one-on-one, it was one with 10 or 15 people, uh, highly trained individuals who who would provide it. The the paradigm for that was done most effectively in the YMCA, where they did a pilot study, then got CMMI funding to do a major uh, study to look at outcomes. The second sort of approach was technological, and the question was, could you take the program delivered in person and provide it in a technological format, using internet, uh, cell phone, uh, etc. So our company was involved, I was very much involved back in 2006 to create a digital version of that program. At that time, we didn't know if it was going to work, we didn't know if people would accept it, but we recognized that people need choice, that having the ability to take in-person and uh, digital as a way, by their choice, it makes perfect sense. And so we, and now a number of other companies, have been able to demonstrate that you can take an in-person program, use great design and great approaches to make technology work, and have individuals use it effectively. Yeah, I want to get uh,
1: into that technology piece a little bit more. Before we do, though, you mentioned the YMCA study, and I was wondering if one of you might uh, talk a little bit about that study, um, you know, sort of expanding from the earlier one that Bob mentioned.
4: Well, one thing I would like to say about the YMCA study, when I just defined about lifestyle intervention, is that self-monitoring the patients, the participants, participants, self-monitoring their eating, their exercise, their weight loss, on a regular basis and reporting that to their lifestyle coach. That element, I think all the physicians would agree, that element of self-monitoring increases motivation, and that stickitiveness to keep going with the program. Mm-hmm.
1: I believe there are also a number of session requirements and some particulars around that as well. Yeah, there. so
5: basically the, the, the um, YMCA study, which has then led to part of the regulations uh, and requirements that the CTC puts out, requires 16 weekly sessions. They have to be offered to the person no less than 16 over 16 weeks and no more than 26 weeks after the additional sessions at least once a month. Uh, those sessions have certain content that have to be there. They have to do goal setting, monitoring, tracking, Uh, get feedback on it, uh, create action plans of what they're going to do between sessions.
1: Uh, This was a big decision for uh, CMS to decide that they were going to go ahead and and pay for this. Uh, It's not a decision that has not been uncontroversial. Sure. It
3: it obviously is a huge decision. Um, Any decision by CMS, um, whatever cost there is, has to be multiplied by millions. And so this becomes a very expensive type of project um, very quickly. Um, but clearly the data was highly suggestive that this would be a wise thing to do, that in the overall scheme, um, not only would it obviously lead to better care and better health outcomes, um, the best way to treat diabetes is to prevent it from developing in the first place, but also in the long term that this would be a financial success. Um, One of the um, advantages that uh, CMS has is that folks, once they're on Medicare, stick with Medicare until the day they pass away. Mm-hmm. Um, for um, payers in the commercial space, um, you know, clearly this was a decision that was looked at quite, um, quite extensively. Um, some payers have already um, uh, made decisions regarding um, continuing coverage or, or providing coverage similar to CMS. Um, my company um, is among those that have. Um, not everybody yet has and some will be looking at the type of data that comes out in a real world, real life experience to see if the results that are hoped for are actually achieved. Mm -hmm. I think
5: another way to to recognize this transformation over the last uh, 10 years is to look at what the Office of Personnel Management has done for federal employees. So OPM sets the standards for health plans in terms of what the benefit package, and Aetna, all the large plans, as well as a number of smaller plans. And over the last years, they've been very much more specific on what you need to do for prevention. And this year, for the first time, in the letter that goes out to all plans and describes to them what they need to do, they specifically call out diabetes prevention program as well as other things for people with diabetes is a very high priority for them as a federal employer with 9 or 10 million beneficiaries or members or employees. That often sets the standard because the plans will want to meet the federal requirements so they can maintain federal programs, but that also means they offer them to other patients. So mm-hmm. that's a, another watershed event that's occurred
2: over the last couple of years. The the other thing that I think highlights back to the the YMCA study, that provided uh, uh, not only the evidence that this could work in a community setting, which I think was important to take, as we said, from a very structured environment to a a less resource-intensive, although certainly a a structured uh, um, program, uh, but also uh, what convinced CMS was the cost savings that Mm -hmm. were demonstrated in that study. And so now it's no longer a theoretical, will it save money, they were able to demonstrate that it, that it did and that in essence was exactly what uh, CMMI was set up to do, to be mm-hmm. able to do pilot studies that show cost savings or high value and then spread that more broadly. The- and I think this in a sense one of the better examples of how CMMI has been successful in driving that.
1: Estimating return on investment. Now, let's talk a little bit more about uh, prevention. Uh, Marianne I know is a diabetes educator certainly you work with patients that uh, are already diagnosed but tell us a little bit about prevention and, and uh, sort of the role for educators and others in, in working with uh, patients, talking about pre-diabetes, talking about risk factors. You and, know, and such.
4: I'm glad you asked that, Dr. Scanlon, because it's been frustrating for diabetes educators all across the country to get referrals from physicians like on this panel for diabetes self-management education, and yet the patients are sending us they have pre-diabetes and they don't qualify maybe for the coverage of pre-diabetes because the payer's not paying, and yet we're getting those people with pre. So now that CMS is gonna pay, and Aetna and different companies, diabetes educators are, um, we feel it's been manna from heaven. And we're in a perfect role to include that in our clinical expertise. And the American Association of Diabetes Educators is now training um, the DPP lifestyle coaches uh, they have a, a recognized training program to train the coaches for the DPP, um, and they're focusing on the diabetes educator and locations that already have a self-management program. So it's an easy fit to include prevention with an existing self-management program run by diabetes educators. Mm-hmm. It's a I perfect like marriage. Common something
5: that might be slightly controversial even. Um, to me, what a person's blood sugar is fasting whether it's 98 and they don't have prediabetes, it's 110 and they do, 130 and they have diabetes, isn't that important? If they're overweight and sedentary, they have risk factors for diabetes and other chronic conditions, they have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, um, arthritis, a range of different conditions. We need to help them to improve their life's trajectory, help them so that they don't add a new chronic condition every three to five years, as many people do manage their multiple chronic conditions if they have And so, yes, it makes sense for the Diabetes Prevention Program to focus on people with pre-diabetes, but lifestyle intervention is the first prescription for a person with type 2 diabetes if they are overweight and sedentary. And so, a glucose-centric requirement of eligibility for a program that we know lowers, helps people lose weight, become more active, and improve these other outcomes is a little too restrictive for me. I really think we should be uh, thinking about individuals at risk for multiple chronic conditions and how to help them have a trajectory that makes it so they can keep have the health they need for the life they want not necessarily change from pre-diabetes to diabetes which they probably don't even know they have because nine out of ten people pre- diabetes don't know that they have it
3: yeah. so it's it, both practical and, and theoretical right. well it also offers an opportunity because these programs will be out there and there'll be data available that it allows um, payers or anybody who has access to the data to be able to look at the issue of beyond just glucose benefit or diabetes-related benefit, but are there other benefits as well that are associated um, with, with obesity or with excess weight, um, whether this is joint issues, back issues, right. things that are clearly not glucose-centric, but right. still related to in the same population and has a significant del- exactly. deleterious so we effect. Have, we and others have demonstrated that. For example, lower the rate of sleep apnea.
5: We went from 5.7 percent in a comparison group to 1.6 percent in those who did our intervention called the Diabetes (coughs) Prevention Program. That intervention, that improvement alone paid for two-thirds of the entire cost and it wouldn't have been calculated if you only looked at the diabetes progression, which also happened. Cardiovascular disease, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, arthritis, sleep apnea, those are expensive conditions. And if you can demonstrate, and I think if we have Aetna's help and others, we can look at those kinds of uh, uh, secondary outcomes. Be able to show an even better return on investment and better improvement in health. What's the role of
1: payers to try to sort of uh, bring this to populations? I mean, obviously, uh, the clinicians that, that we have around the table and around the country will deliver the the programs. But thinking about the populations that you cover and getting the word out that it is covered and in, in, in trying to, uh, to have those populations
3: take advantage of these programs. Sure, I mean we would love to see these types of programs being taken um, taken advantage of being utilized um, clearly there's um, the health benefits for members the cost benefits um, both for members and for the payer um, and just in general a healthier um, world which is one of our goals. Um, we know from past experience that even when there is solid coverage, such as for diabetes education for folks with diabetes, that many folks do not take advantage of this, either because the patient doesn't take advantage of the benefit or physicians don't refer. Um, and regardless of why it doesn't occur, it doesn't occur and that's to the detriment of our members. Mm-hmm. So. Fortunately, diabetes is one of those um, items that plays a significant role in quality metrics and measuring um, quality programs and and contracts that that exist because of quality care that's being provided. So, there's an incentive for physicians to be making sure that their members, that their patients are getting the the care that they should for our members and hopefully we will be able to facilitate getting the word out there that this is a covered benefit right. and yeah. that folks should take advantage of it.
5: So the so, real secret sauce is how to get people to sign up and show up. Once right. you get
3: them to the program we
5: we can almost predict for the thousand people, ten thousand people, going what's going to happen, but how do you get the right person to the right program at the right time to engage them, to activate them, to get them to see that
3: there is a benefit from that program. That's the secret sauce that we're all trying to 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 really uh, identify what it is that either identifies a patient who is likely to be engaged if you offer them they're the one who will show up or what is the behavior that whether it's a payer or the provider what's the behavior that they can add to or take somebody employer. who is less right. engaged
2: and turn them into somebody who is exactly sure.
4: You know, and, and, and
2: that's where I think uh, uh, another piece that you know I know we started to talk about a little bit is offering uh, different modalities. So yeah. in person things are going to work well. Going to the wire are going to work well for certain people, but digital solutions are going to work well for another group right. of people. And so tailoring. The uh, approach and engagement to what uh, a patient would be most likely to so, do.
1: Per- perfect segue because uh, earlier uh, we talked about technology, and I want to get into different modalities, different uh, different types of uh, uh, coaches, educators, different types of technology, digital technology, a lot of different ways in which these uh, these prevention programs can be delivered. Could somebody talk about? Yeah, uh, uh,
4: I would I would love to jump in here. Um, I've got some notes in front of me, so if you don't mind, I'm looking down. But, you know, I have two sons who are in the millennial generation. And if, if you don't deliver messages to them on the smartphone or online, the message gets lost, um, especially when we talked about younger populations. And so the digital platforms, I think, that will be, especially for younger people, is online, of course, through the computer uh, for diabetes prevention, and smartphone apps text messaging on smartphones, um, interactive voice response on telephones, and telephone conference calls, and emails. So there's like six great digital platforms, especially to address that younger population who relies on digital, to um, enroll in programs, get their messages, know about behavior change. I think it's critical.
1: What about other populations? Does that work for the Medicare population or for those who are older?
5: Yeah, it certainly does. I think we have to distinguish between two kinds of digital approaches. One that I would call tools, and the other that interventions. So a text message to remind you to do something, it's a tool. An intervention says there's a beginning, a middle, perhaps an end, there's a theory behind it, there's been proven evidence uh, that it works, there's a coherent set of uh, activities, of protocol, curriculum, et cetera. And tools ena- enable people to do things, but in most cases, it's the people who are ready to do it anyway. The intervention has to be designed so that it can take someone who's thinking about it, overcome their barriers, get them to become active, and have them do the things that they want and need to do to improve their health. So yes, those tools are important, but if they're not in the context of an intervention that's been thought through, my prediction is they will only work for those who don't really need it as much.
1: Mm -hmm. I would think in in terms of the, uh, the interventions, there are things like behavior change, uh, but also on the tool side, it's it's sharing data as well, right? Collecting information and being able to share that. Uh, also, you know, Bob, from your perspective as a clinician, with patients who uh, you know might participate in these programs, do these help you to? Uh...
2: Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I like to do with my patients uh, is ask them if they have a smartphone and do they carry it with them all the time? And depending on what they have. I say, you know, it's actually, how much do you walk? And they say, oh, I walk a lot. And I'm like, do you mind, can we check to see on your phone? It probably tracks how much you're walking. And typically they're very surprised that they're walking far less than they (laughs) thought. And I say, well, here's a goal. What what do you think you can do? And, and, And so that's a very simple example of a common digital tool that uh, is pretty ubiquitous uh, that can be very effective. Now that, as Neil says, is only a tool and really if you want to, you know, do something to prevent diabetes, you need a a whole intervention uh, based on not only counting steps, but also dietary changes and other behavior change approaches.
3: And also in the population, it's very easy um, to accept that, you know, the millennial population the millennial age um, lives and dies by technology. Um, But that does not mean that older folks aren't very um, accepting of technology and for particularly um, folks in the Medicare population where getting to their physician may be a real challenge. Um, because of other health issues, the transportation issues, um, so in that population, it may be even more important than in the millennial population, where it, it's the process that they that they like, but they have alternatives that sure. an older population may not.
4: Because it can be telephone. So if, you know, that's I have right. a 97-year-old mother who would know a computer from a dishwasher, right? But she knows how to use the telephone, and that's part of the digital platforming.
0: listen to the full discussion or to see coverage from the 2018 annual meeting of the American Association of Diabetes Educators, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes.